0: not been with us for a while, we've been studying through 1 Corinthians, and today we come to 1 Corinthians 13. ask you to take Bible and turn there. It's page 959 in these Bibles in the pews. Obviously, the best-known chapter in 1 Corinthians is this one. As you're turning there, I'll just remind you that uh, the church in Corinth was in a a large city, a commercial center, a port city. You had people from all around the world that that were there, so a variety of nationalities, a variety of religions, um, lots of money, uh, being a commercial center, and the Apostle Paul had had gone there five years before he wrote this letter. He he stayed there uh, for a while, led people to Christ, established a church. He now has moved on to the city of Ephesus. They have sent a letter to him asking about a lot of issues they were facing. Uh, about wisdom, uh, about the Lord's Supper, about divisions in the church, about spiritual giftedness, which we looked at in chapter 12 the past couple of weeks. And uh, he's addressing those issues uh, in this letter back to them. And now we come, really I have to read the last half of the verse of chapter 12 before reading in chapter 13, but hear God's word. And I will show you a still more excellent way. Love is patient and kind. Love does not envy or boast. It is not arrogant or rude. It does not insist on its own way. It is not irritable or resentful. It does not rejoice at wrongdoing, but rejoices with the truth. Love bears all things, believes all things, hopes all things, endures all things. Love never ends. As for prophecies, they will pass away. As for tongues, they will cease. As for knowledge, it will pass away. For we know in part... So now faith, hope, and love abide, these three, but the greatest of these is love. I'm going to lead us in prayer in just a second, but I know what it's like to sit in a church service and have your mind, because of what you're going through, be a million miles away from what's being said. I can remember right after one of my close relatives died, uh, being here and and sitting in the pew and and thinking, I am... What I'm experiencing is so far removed from what is being talked about in this sermon. I I just, it was a a very painful uh, feeling. That could be the case here, especially when you hear what to some people is a sentimental chapter um, that's often pulled out of context. Let's pray together. Father, we pray that whatever our needs are, we desire that you be glorified. By conforming us more to the image of Christ, use your word. You say it's profitable for teaching, for reproof, for correction, for training in righteousness. In Jesus' name, amen. When Jesus was asked a question, what is the greatest commandment in the Old Testament? What is the greatest commandment? He responded with, you shall love the Lord your God with your heart and with all your soul and with all your mind. And then he went on, even though the person didn't ask, And he said, and the second greatest commandment is you shall love your neighbor as yourself. Jesus was saying that the identifying mark of a believer, a true believer in Christ, is love. That's how it should be our mark, our badge of identification. Now today, the concept of love basically is defined by everyone according to their own desires. In our culture, at least. And sometimes it becomes the overriding situation ethic to even justify horrible things done to other people. The underlying problem at the church in Corinth, I gave you a little background a moment ago, but those problems they were dealing with of divisiveness and elevating certain teachers and dividing up with a party spirit that I follow this guy over here, Apollos, well, I follow Paul, and of course we follow Jesus, the underlying problem was pride. They were self-centered, they were self-absorbed, and they elevated public gifts, especially speaking gifts like prophecy and preaching and speaking in tongues and knowledge, they raised those real high. And all the other gifts like service and mercy and things behind the scenes, they they paid no attention to those. In fact, they even looked down on those. And so Paul is addressing that attitude of arrogance, that attitude of self-absorption that was in that particular church and can be in our church or any church for that matter. And so he writes chapter 13 not as just some kind of poetic observation about love that we could print in in, uh, cards now that that we give at at special occasions. He gave it to them to try to deal with their problem of self-centeredness. Now, we have to define two terms. Gifts of the Holy Spirit and the fruit of the Holy Spirit. For the past few weeks, from chapter 12, we looked at the gifts of the Holy Spirit. And I gave you this definition that's certainly not original with me. A gift of the Holy Spirit is an endowment of ability by the Holy Spirit distributed to every Christian for the purpose of increasing and building up the body of Christ. God gives at least one gift, never all the gifts, to every believer. You have, Christian, at least one spiritual gift. And it's for the building up of the body of Christ. That's the first term that needs to be defined, gifts of the Spirit. The second one is fruit of the Spirit. Now, fruit of the Spirit is different. These are characteristics of Christ's likeness that the Holy Spirit produces in us as we abide in Christ. We find this in Galatians chapter 5, where it says the fruit of the Spirit is love, joy, peace, patience, kindness, goodness, and so forth. And so gifts of the Spirit are an ability given by the Holy Spirit. Fruit of the Spirit are Christ-like characteristics that he bears in our life. In chapter 13, Paul transitions from gifts of the Spirit in chapter 12, now to talk about the fruit of the Holy Spirit, that should be in a believer's life, primarily love. If we are to love others, we have to have the love of God in our hearts. God is love. That is his very nature. He loves because he is love. Our love is from him. Now, I have talked to, uh, on occasion, unbelievers who don't have an intellectual problem with the Christian faith, but say... I could never live like a Christian. Last year, one of the books I read was a new biography about Eric Little, the Olympic champion from the 1920s for Great Britain from Scotland. And he was born in China to missionary parents. After the Olympics, he went back to China. He died in a Japanese uh, internment camp of a brain tumor. He had sent his wife and two daughters to Canada Um, She Was Expecting a Third Child. It was one of the most moving books, and uh, I I can't recommend it high enough. I believe the title was For For the Glory. It's written by a British sports author. And what, uh, uh, on a side note to the powerful content of the book, was the respect that you could tell the author had for Eric Little. But I read nothing in the book that made me think the author was a Christian. But he was just uh, awed with the character as he, of Eric Little as he studied his life and his devotion to the people God had called him to minister to and his sacrificial uh, life. Of, he could have left and gone with his, his family to Canada, but he stayed. He stayed at his post, even to his own demise. And so sometimes unbelievers say, I could never live like that. I respect the way a Christian lives, but I, I can't do it. That's not me. Well, if by any chance that's your thinking today, you're leaving out the fact that when a person comes to faith in Christ, we now have a resource we did not have before we were Christians, and that's the Holy Spirit. And he empowers us to do that which we could never do in our own ability or our own natures. And primarily that is to love others, even our enemies. Now a man who influenced me a lot in my younger years as a new Christian through his writings was Josh McDowell. Now his son Sean teaches at a college in California and is writing some excellent books. He's a Christian apologist. And in one of Josh McDowell's early books, at the end he told about how he had come to believe in Christ. He was from a very skeptical background. And about his own conversion. And here's how he describes his life before and after he became a believer. He said, I had a lot of hatred. It wasn't something always outwardly manifested, but rather an inner grinding. I despised the black man, the yellow man, the red man, and the white man. Why? Because anyone who was different from me was a threat to me. I was insecure. But one man epitomized everything I hated, my father. To me, he was the town drunk. My high school friends would make jokes about him making a fool of himself around town. He grew up in a small Midwestern town. I laughed outside, but I was crying on the inside. Sometimes when people would come to visit at our home, I would tie dad up in the barn and tell them he had gone on an important call. But when I became a Christian, God's love somehow took that hatred and turned it right around to love. Love so strong that I was able to look at my father straight in the eye and say, Dad, I love you. And that really shook him. Six months later, I was in a serious car accident. When my father came into my hospital room, he said, Son, how can you love a father like me? And I said, Dad, six months ago, I didn't have the capacity to do it. But through Jesus Christ, I can love you and other people as well. And I explained to him how Christ had changed me from the inside out. And 45 minutes later, he got on his knees and committed his life to Jesus Christ. And when he looked up, he literally was a changed man. It was just like somebody had reached down and turned on a light bulb. Thirteen months later, he died. But in those few months, scores of people in my hometown and the surrounding area committed their lives to Christ because of my father's changed life. This is why I believe Jesus Christ is the greatest revolutionary who has ever lived. And so the Holy Spirit gives us the capacity to love others far beyond our own ability. Well, what does Paul say? I just want to look at the opening three verses. My plan, Lord willing, is to preach three sermons over the next three, this Sunday and the next two, on First Corinthians 13. But let's just look at the first three verses where he talks about how love should be a priority. And remember, he's writing to a self-absorbed church. He's writing to a divided church that was always about the latest and greatest and the most gifted and personality cults. And he begins by saying, If I speak in the tongues of men and of angels but have not love, I am a noisy gong or a clanging cymbal. What is this speaking in tongues that he refers to? Well, if you do a survey of the New Testament, it's not without controversy, but it speaks of, of this gift in several different ways. In, First Corinthians, in the next chapter, 1 Corinthians chapter 14, It it seems to be a private prayer language that even the Apostle Paul refers to. For our purpose, it would would be someone praying in English and slipping into a prayer language unknown to them. So it comes up in the area of intercession. Once again, this is not without great controversy. Second, a way that is used in the New Testament is when God gives a person an ability to speak a language they've never learned in order to be a missionary. On the day of Pentecost, when the Holy Spirit came after Jesus had already ascended to the Father after the resurrection, these early disciples began to go out and speak, and there were people in Jerusalem from all sorts of languages and nationalities, and they all heard them in their own language. That was the gift of tongues or language. Third is a heavenly language of revelation. We see that in the previous chapter, chapter 12, Paul mentioned it, a a message from God that has to be interpreted by someone. And so they were making great issue of this. Oh, what a great thing the the, the Corinthian Christians were. And so Paul begins on that note because they seem most fascinated with this. And he says, he uses himself, he speaks in first person. If I were to speak, With the tongues of men, and even have the eloquence of angels, but have not love, then it's nothing but noise. He compares it to a gong or a cymbal. I mean, think about a a symphony. And the orchestra has, has brass and strings and woodwinds and percussion and so forth. But imagine going to a cymbal concert. Or saying, oh, look, the next piece on the program is concerto for cymbal. I mean, a cymbal, hopefully, is used sparingly. If it's just by itself, it's noise. They it can't even, there's no melody, there's no carrying a tune with a cymbal. And he's saying that's what eloquent speech is like without love. It's just noise. I don't know who said it, but I wrote it down. The greatest truths spoken in the greatest way fall short if they are not spoken in love. Well, he moves on. And then in verse 2, he says, Prophecy and all knowledge, that those are nothing. If I have prophetic powers and understand all mysteries and all knowledge, and if I have all faith so as to remove mountains but have not love, I am nothing. Who were the prophets? What what was the gift of prophecy in the Old Testament? These were people who would hear from God and then they would communicate that to the masses. In the Old Testament, sometimes we have speaking prophets that just spoke the message. We also have writing prophets. Sometimes they were both. They wrote and spoke. Two hundred and twenty-one times in the Old Testament, we have someone speaking and it begins with, thus says the Lord. It was a prophetic word. We have prophets like Moses and Ezekiel and Isaiah and Elijah and many others. They were direct mouthpieces to God. In the New Testament, it changes. The gift of prophecy becomes more a proclaimer of truth that God has already revealed. The Apostle Paul had this gift. And he had the highest regard for the office of prophet and gift of prophecy. But what we see in the Apostle Paul's prophetic ministry is that he often ministered with tears and he prayed with tears why because being a jew he had a heart that his fellow jews come to believe would come to believe the gospel of christ and when many did not and many caused him great harm and brought great trials on him because he was spreading this message he was moved to tears I mean, he was compassionate for the very ones that were persecuting him. He ministered in great power because he ministered in great love. Knowledge without love is nothing. So even if you could prophesy and know all these great things. Now, I, I, I love to hear brilliant people. My... Greek professor in seminary when we got working on a master's there was Simon Kistemacher, we call him Dr. K fluent in ten languages he was brilliant, he wrote the book we used to learn Greek and yet he's, if you have a new international version of the Bible you look and he's listed as one of the translators of the Old Testament so I guess he did Hebrew in his, on his off time or something and he taught us Greek. And how impressive that was. Paul was ranked right with the intelligentsia of his day. He could go head to head and debate with anyone in his day due to his knowledge from his education. Uh, and yet, and, and he, he was no enemy of, of, of learning and knowledge. Uh, and yet, he said you can know everything about everything and have prophetic gifts, and so forth, and yet if there's not love between you and others, then it's nothing. One of my closest friends years ago as a student had shared the gospel with a guy who lived in his same uh, apartment-type dwelling in, in the same complex, and this fellow was not interested. It's not that he didn't believe, he just wasn't interested, or that he didn't think it was rational. And so then my friend was with two other guys and they were uh, traveling to Auburn, Alabama. And they were on a two-lane road and they came over a hill and there was a car passing right, coming right at them on a solid line. The car was, they both tried to avoid the other car so they collided at combined speeds of about 120. The two people in the other car, an older man and woman, were killed on the spot. My friend had taken off his seatbelt to move to the middle to get something in the front seat and and he hit the the rearview mirror and it scalped him like that. I'm not trying to be too gory, but God in his providence sent a doctor in the car right behind him who saved his life right there on the side of the road. The guy back in the apartment, I don't remember his first name, because my friend was in the hospital for a matter of weeks, and this guy, all he could think about he said he'd sit in his bay window, look out, and think, what if my friend dies? And he came to faith in Christ thinking about the love of this guy who now, whose life hung in the balance from this car wreck. And so he's, if you are like me and intimidated thinking, I can't enter into a discussion with this person, he or she might ask me a question I don't know the answer to. Of course that will happen. But you have to trust that God will allow the love that motivates me to speak to him anyway to come through. And that's far more powerful than answering questions. And that love will say, you know, I don't know the answer to that question, but I know someone who does, and I'll find out, and I'll get back to you with the best answer I can find. Well, if if this... If uh, prophecy and knowledge and all this without love is nothing, uh, he goes on in verse two. He says, "What about faith? There's some people that have mountain-moving faith." Bill Bright, who started Campus Crusade for Christ, he and his wife Vonette, He was many people thought he had the gift of faith that we're going to take the gospel to every nation on the planet of the planet, the fulfillment of the Great Commission in our generation. And he would believe God for great things. He had this this uh, worldwide faith. You might say, Paul says. You might have that, but without love, it's nothing. What about generosity? What about if we sacrificially give to help others? Verse 3, we can be generous if I give away all I have, not just some of it, not just a portion of it. And if I deliver up my body to be burned, presumably for the cause of Christ, but have not love, I gain nothing. Even martyrdom, he says, without love is nothing. A little over two years ago in February, um, February the 12th, 2015, ISIS put on one of their websites a photo of 21 Coptic Egyptian Christians. Now, if you don't know what a Coptic Christian is, it sounds strange to our ears, but it's, it's inherent to Egypt. It's probably the oldest, for lack of a better term, denomination in history. They trace their roots back to Mark. I don't mean they read the Gospel of Mark. I mean, Mark, who wrote the Gospel of Mark, took the Gospel down to Egypt. And so that's where they trace their lineage, uh, still to this day. And so these construction workers that were from Egypt were kidnapped on two different dates, some in Libya and some in Syria. And they, you remember, the gory pictures as they were held on that beach. And on February the 12th, ISIS said, if if these certain demands weren't met, we're going to kill these men. And three days later, they did just that. And they put the video, went out worldwide. And there was a caption under the video that said, quote, people of the cross, followers of the hostile Egyptian church. Now, after the beheadings, the Coptic Church, the Coptic Orthodox Church, released the names of these men. But there were 21 in the video, but they only released 20 names. It was later learned that the 21st martyr was a man named Matthew, and I can't pronounce his last name, and he was from the country of Chad. He happened to be with them. And he was not a Christian. But when he saw the faith of these 20 other men and knowing that it was about to cost them their lives, when, he, when the terrorists asked him if he rejected Jesus, knowing it would cost his life, he said, their God is my God. And he died along with them. Now, let's back up for just a moment. Because when you're dealing with a familiar passage, it's easy to let it go in one ear and out the other. Is Paul saying that that faith and knowledge and proclaiming the truth and sacrifice, even giving up your life for the cause of Christ, is not important? I mean, is that really what he's saying? No. He's telling these Corinthian Christians that are Elevating these gifts that by comparison you can do all these, you can use these gifts to the utmost and make the supreme sacrifice but compared to love they are nothing. If you are a warring faction in your church, your attention is on the wrong thing. That is what he's saying. So we should make love our greatest aim. John Stott wrote, Christian love is not the victim of our emotions, but the servant of our will. May, through God's Mm -hmm. grace, love characterize First Presbyterian Church in Macon, Georgia. Let's pray together. Our Father, we, we see these truths, and they can be applied in a thousand different situations in each of our lives, but we pray that we would see what's most important, and we know this love especially for the unlovely can only be produced by your holy spirit so we ask that you would do that even use this time in your word to restore broken relationships to rebuild bridges with with people with whom we are at odds and we pray these things in jesus name amen